0: charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash
1: biggerpockets. Did you know that short and medium term rentals offer double the cash flow compared to long term rentals? It's true, and rent to retirement just made investing in them easier than ever. Now you can buy fully turnkey short term and medium term rentals that are newly built or renovated, leased, and managed. Maximize your cash flow, appreciation, and equity while rent to retirement takes care of all the rest for you. Plus, their creative financing options like interest rate buy downs can get you a rate in the low five lives and their investor loans let you buy multiple properties with as little as 5% down. Not 20%, 5% down. But why buy with rent to retirement They're investors just like you and me and rock one of the highest reputations across bigger pockets with more five-star reviews than any other company on our site. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. rent to retirementcom That's rent t o retirementcom or text REI to 3377. Again, text REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with some of the best cash flowing markets today.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to on the market today we have an incredible show for you Jamil and I are going to be interviewing Rick Sharga, the EVP of market intelligence for one of the biggest data providers in the entire industry, Adam data. And we have an incredible conversation that we'll get into in just a minute. But before we do Jamil, you are the busiest man I've ever met. What have you been up to recently? Man, it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. I'm wrapping up season two
2: of Triple Digit Flip right now, so we're in the tail three houses of our season. Uh, it's incredibly taxing because these three houses are crazy big projects. We're in the middle of a market shift right now, so my wholesale operation is uh, relearning a few markets and how we are approaching them in terms of pricing. Uh, and beyond that, I'm enjoying my opportunities with bigger pockets and this has been a lot of fun and we're just doing the
0: thing that we always do. Buy houses. We're
2: buying houses, man.
0: <laughs> it just sounds so simple when you say it that way. Yeah. Well that's awesome. We appreciate you making the time for us. Um it's always fun to have you here and uh, I think the interview. You know, just for everyone listening, we do the interviews before we do this intro. Um, the interview is awesome with with Rick. He is so informed and so smart. What should our listeners look forward to and pay attention to in the interview?
2: Because I think what's really important to pay attention to is how and why Rick is saying the things he's saying. Okay, the fundamentals in his arguments, and 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 this is, I think, the biggest piece that's been missing with a lot of the headlines that you're reading out there or or the people that are clickbaiting you on YouTube the facts are is that it's it sells okay to say something really 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 wild and crazy and to stir your emotions and to tap into your lizard brain and 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 instill fear but what i found that when we talked to Rick what was really interesting was just how measured he is i mean this man has looked at the numbers. He's swimming in data. He understands the dynamics that created our last real estate crisis. And he's comparing them to the current market conditions. And he's making a very strong argument to where the housing market is going and why. And I really want the viewers and the listeners to pay attention to those fundamentals. Are his
0: arguments strong? That's such a good point. I mean, if you if people are trying to sell you something, think about like what their motivation is. Right. And Rick his his job is to make accurate predictions and forecasts. Yes. Like he you know, some people come on and they say this to me too. They're like, Oh, you, you benefit if houses are bought or people keep investing. And sure, I work for bigger pockets. Let's be clear about that. But my job is not is not is to try and read data as accurately as I can. And that that right. is what my motivation is. And same thing with Rick. And, you know, I just think in general, people need to be wary of any people out there who say things in these definite terms, like the housing market will crash or it will go up forever. Like the truth, as we talk about this in the interview is always somewhere in the middle. And like Rick does a great job of parsing out the nuance. And I know people want to just know, is it up or down, but there is nuance. And that as an investor, understanding that nuance is where you're going to gain your advantage. So awesome interview. Uh, With that, let's get to the interview with Rick, but first let's
3: take a quick break. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP.
0: You've had a long day, and when you get home, waiting for you is a frozen dinner? No, I think you deserve better, and thankfully, Factors, delicious, ready-to-eat, fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals are here to help. Fuel your body with what it needs with over 35 delicious dietitian approved weekly options. And that includes options like calorie smart, protein plus and keto meals. And they're already in just two minutes. We're talking about restaurant quality meals here that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. That's right. There's no prep here. There's no dishes and there's no more messy meals. We've done the math here and figured out that factor is actually less expensive than takeout. Plus, as we said, every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. You can get as many of these meals as you want or as little as you want and you can choose whatever meals you want each and every week. If you want to pause or reschedule your deliveries, you can do that anytime. You also have breakfast options like pancakes, you can get midday snacks, you can get smoothies and much more. I just ate lunch just a couple of minutes ago and I'm getting hungry right now just thinking about Factor Meals. So head to factormeals.com slash market50 and use code market50 to get 50% off. That's code market50 at factormeals.com slash market50 to get 50% off. The dream of
1: owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest stay. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing or two about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with a reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at Vicasa.com backslash bigger pockets. That's Vicasa.com backslash bigger pockets.
0: Rick Sharga, Executive Vice President of Market Intelligence for Adam Data. Welcome to On The Market. Thank you so much for being here.
4: It's great to be back with you guys and looking forward to talking about what's going on in the real estate market.
0: Okay, good. Because I know we we do want to talk about foreclosures and what's going on there since you're such an expert in that topic. But since you're knowledgeable about everything going on in the housing market, I cannot resist asking you what your read of the current market conditions are.
4: Yeah, the, the, the impact of rising mortgage rates uh, has been dramatic and, and, and has hit the market a lot faster than the many forecasters had, had expected. Uh, May, May home sales numbers were the fifth consecutive month where we had lower sales in the prior month. Uh, it's marked almost a full year where home sales were down on a year-over-year basis. Uh, so we, we are starting to see a, a weakening of demand. I believe that's tied into affordability issues that uh, prospective home buyers are facing. Uh, if you were looking to buy the same house today that you might have bought a year ago, the combination of rising home prices and those mortgage rates doubling means your monthly payment would be somewhere between 40 and 50 percent higher than it was a year ago. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure you guys got your 50 percent annual raise. Uh, mine, mine seems to be missing. Um, same. And, and Weird. Unfortunately, a lot of home buyers are in the same boat I am. So, uh, we, we are starting to see the impact there. Uh, loan loan applications are down about 20% year over year. Uh, pending home sales are off uh, year over year, and, and for the most part month over month. So there there are signs everywhere that we're really at an inflection point in the market, and and uh, the Federal Reserve's actions, which I believe were at least partly intended to to cool down the housing market, um, which. Is part of the inflation mess that they're trying to, to fix right now uh, have probably been more successful more quickly than they expected.
0: And so, where do you think we go from here?
4: I, I think what's what's going to happen is is you almost can't be on social media without some guru telling you that the housing market's going to crash and you know expect prices to fall thirty to fifty percent. Uh, and and I'm so I'm so tired of reading those stories. Um, I, I I see just about no possibility that that's going to happen. Now, the last time I said almost nothing could go wrong, we had a global pandemic. So I'm a little <laughs> bit cautious about uh, making making two broad statements But because uh, God knows what will happen next. But um, the the most likely scenario is we start to see home prices plateau. We see home price appreciation slow down dramatically. So most people forget in a normal housing cycle, you start to see sales activity pick up. Excuse me. That's followed by home prices picking up. And at a certain point, prices get to a a number or a level where buyers say that's just too much and they stop buying. So sales volume drops and then prices uh, kind of normalize or or correct. That's sort of the period that we're in right now. So I anticipate we're going to see home sales continue to slow. Um, I don't think we're going to get into the, the low levels of home sales we had coming out of the Great Recession. But I, I believe by the end of this year, you're going to see home prices maybe uh, appreciating in, in the low single digits, three, four, maybe 5% on a year over year basis, which is something we desperately needed. We, we can't keep seeing home prices go up 15, 20% a year uh, and, and avoid being in a housing bubble. But we still have strong demand. Demographically, we have the largest cohort in history of, of young adults reaching home buying age. Uh, we still have people looking to, to move uh, to less expensive markets because now they can live wherever they want because they're working from home. So there is still pent up demand. We we still see bidding activity, uh, multiple bidders on the same homes uh, as, as they come to market. Maybe it's not 30 anymore. Maybe it's down to 10. Um, but that demand and the fact that we also have a record level of homeowner equity, over $27 trillion in homeowner equity will provide a a lot of cushion uh, for for any potential downturn. I I don't think we should be surprised if we see local market price corrections. If you're in the Bay Area in California, coastal California, maybe the Pacific Northwest, maybe some markets like Austin or Phoenix or Boise, Idaho, that were just crazy, crazy um, overpriced a year ago. Uh, might settle back down. We might we might see some some price corrections in those markets, but nationally speaking, uh, I think I think you see home price appreciation drop, and I think you see prices plateau. One one of the one of the mistakes people make, and this is one of those urban myths that won't go away, like alligators in the New York sewers. Uh, is that whenever mortgage rates go up, home prices come down. And that's that's not the case historically, believe it or not. If you track this stuff historically, what you find is as mortgage rates go up, home price appreciation goes down. Uh, it doesn't mean home prices are falling. It just means that, that appreciation is less than it was the, the prior year. And the other misnomer is that people think if you have a recession, the housing market suffers. and And in fact, if you go back to Every recession, <clears throat> excuse me, from World War II forward in the United States, you see that housing actually outperformed the overall economy and in most cases dragged us out of the recession. One one exception to that rule, and that was the Great Recession, our most recent real recession, and that's because housing dragged us into that one. But I, 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 I see housing slowing down. I see prices slowing down, but I, I, I really don't see any scenario where we wind up with a crash.
0: One of the main things that happened in 2008 when, and led to the severity of the price declines is that there is this foreclosure crisis. Can you just provide some historical context about what happened there with foreclosures so that we can better understand what and if, what risk might exist of a foreclosure crisis now?
4: Well, you know, I, I, I try and explain things in terms that are simple enough so that I understand them. Uh, and And the best analogy I can give you for what happened back then was that in in decades past, lenders were expected to provide adult supervision at the party. Uh, and in in the mid two thousands, um, they basically threw the keys to the liquor cabinet to the kids and went away for the weekend. Um, and And we had kind of predictable results. it It was a perfect storm, dave. Uh, it 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 was a scenario that we literally haven't seen in, in the history of the U.S. housing market before. It was worse in terms of foreclosure activity, even than the Great Depression. Uh, and that was partly because home ownership rates were as high as they were 10 years ago. Uh, but people blame subprime borrowers, and they were probably the tipping point. Um, people were getting loans that really had no business getting loans. They, they didn't qualify for loans. Uh, the, the, the industry even came up with a term for the type of loans that were being offered. They called them ninja loans which stood for no income, no jobs, and no assets. Um, So if you fogged a mirror, you could get a loan. And that was okay as long as home prices were escalating. Once home prices stopped going up uh, and these loans started to reset, uh, and and that's something you have to keep in mind, uh, there were about 15 million adjustable rate loans that were resetting during this period. A very high percentage of those loans uh, had borrowers on teaser rates. So they were getting a loan with 1% or 2% mortgage uh, interest rates, which was the only way they could afford to buy the home because they couldn't make a monthly payment if, if they were paying full mortgage rates. When those loans reset at 5 or 6%, um, the borrowers couldn't make the payments. As home prices started to weaken, they suddenly found themselves underwater on loans. Uh, and that was in large part, again, because the lenders were giving away loans with you know, zero down payments in some cases, negative amortization loans, which meant you you owed money. Uh, you were underwater as soon as you, you you bought the house. So it it the whole thing just crumbled on itself. There was a lot of speculative buying going on, um, and and this is where inexperienced investors got themselves in trouble. Uh, I'm I'm coming to you today from Southern California, Orange County. There was a story in our local paper about uh, a local investor who owned eight properties in the city of Santa Ana. And that doesn't sound like a, 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 a bad thing until you realize that her full-time job was well, she was a cleaning lady. She made less than $40,000 a year and somebody thought it was a good idea to give her eight mortgages. Uh, and, and, and this was kind of replicated at scale across the rest of the country. So when things started to go sideways, they went bad in, in, a, real, in a real real quick and, and dramatic manner. Uh, and it kind of fed on itself. Uh, you, you talked about uh, the, the glut of foreclosures. About 10 million people lost a home to foreclosure during that during that, that time frame, which again was unprecedented. Uh, and as those foreclosure properties came to market, they were coming in at, at dramatically discounted prices, which was driving down the value of, of all the price of all the properties around them. So it was just it was a, a vicious circle that that kind of fed on itself and, and, and continued to get worse. One other big difference, between then and now. And, and, and the biggest difference is loan quality, by the way. Um, delinquency rates right now are the lowest they've been since the mortgage bankers association started tracking them in the early 1970s. So, so people are getting loans. They're, they're making their payments. Uh, that wasn't the case back then, but the other big difference is inventory. So we talked about supply and demand a couple of minutes ago. Um, Right now, we have about two and a half months of supply of available homes for people looking to buy. In a normal market with equilibrium, you're talking about a six month supply. So we were roughly a right right now we're about a third of where we would normally be. There was a 13 month supply of homes in in 2007, right before the the the, the, the stilts got knocked out from under the house. Uh, so we had we had more than twice as much inventory as the market would normally absorb. Uh, and the builders never got the memo. They kept on building uh, even after the market had turned. So again, it was just there was way too much inventory. There were way too many bad loans. Uh, that precipitated a foreclosure wave, which just sucked the air out of the the whole market. Um, and and uh, it it took us a better part of ten years to dig our way out of that.
0: That, that's super helpful. I often forget about those teaser loans and what a big impact that had. It's just such a foreign concept now that they were able to do that and people were giving out those kind of Well, loans. And,
4: and you're, you're right. Uh, when the CFPB was formed as part of the Dodd-Frank Act back in the day, uh, they put uh, ability to repay uh, rules in place for loans. They, they, in a, they call it the, the, the qualified mortgage rules. Uh, and it, it means you can't get an adjustable rate loan today unless you have the ability to repay it at full, uh, fully indexed loan rates. So it, it's a, a big, big difference in terms of, of qualifying. And a lot of people think uh, maybe it, it overcorrected, and some people who should be able to get loans can't get loans today, but that's a, that's a discussion for another podcast. So uh,
2: thank you so much, Rick. That was incredibly insightful because for me right now, especially in the space that I'm in, and there's a lot of folks that – are tuned into bigger pockets that are primarily investors. And so the inventory that we're after the inventory that we hold, that's the inventory that we want to put into the marketplace as either rentals, short-term rentals, fix and flips. And so we represent this portion of activity that happens in the, in the market. And right now with all of the fear that's in the marketplace, and I'm so happy that you address the guru around every corner that is screaming crash from the rooftops <laughs> and they're doing that to sell a course right they're they're doing that to sell a program they're doing that to sell something i understand it i don't agree with it i think it's salacious and it's and it and it's not helpful but there's fear there's fear right now and and th- these are the things that i've seen kind of push the market right we've had migration yep we've had millennials and money we had really cheap money one of those things has disappeared one of them has disappeared, and so we still have these very strong dynamics that still exist with people still moving. We still have people coming of age that are well-qualified. They are well-capitalized because of the types of jobs they have and the kind of income that they can produce and they can actually buy these homes. But you're, you're, you're noting that, that we are in a space right now where we're at the inflection point. Is there, is there a time or is there a world where that inflection point just nosedives even for 12 months to where we have some kind of overcorrection where we find opportunities in the housing market? Because I think that's the thing that has stopped people from taking action is they're waiting for an opportunity to jump in and they want to know, Rick, is now my time to pounce? Should I put on the camouflage? Should I hide behind the tree? Should I come with my cash? Should I wait to hunt my house down? Or are we just crazy thinking that opportunities like that are going to exist and we should just jump in right now, even if it means that we're going to get mediocre at best returns for the next 12 to 24 months? But of, over time, as we know, housing will appreciate. What's your thoughts on that?
4: You know, every every investor's decision making has to be based on their own plans, uh, their own risk tolerance and things like that. There's there's no way to guarantee against a, a major correction or, or, or downturn in the market. Um, having said that, if it, and this will show you that I really desperately need a life, uh, I, I was recently looking at home prices over the last 100 years, um, and, and you can actually find this data, uh, and we've had exactly one period where home prices have fallen for over 20% in 100 years, and, and that was the Great Recession. So I, I think we all have a little bit of PTSD coming out of that, and and every time we see something negative, the the, the knee jerk reaction is panic, or it's uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna sharpen my knives and get ready to pounce because things are going to go bad. A lot of the same gurus who are predicting you know wholesale housing market crash were the ones that a year and a half ago were predicting a tidal wave of foreclosure activity, uh, and we were going to see millions and I, and this was this was also I, I was kind of shrieking from the mountaintops on this one, we were going to see tens of millions of foreclosures and tens of millions of people evicted from their homes as we exited the pandemic. And, you know, just to be practical about it, if you start to see tens of millions of, of people being evicted from homes and, and, and rental units, you're, you're actually going to have war on the street. So it, it, it's, it's not going to be a housing market problem. It's going to be a civil unrest problem. Um, that didn't materialize. And 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 the rationale behind why that was supposed to happen was as faulty uh, as, as I believe the housing market crash uh, rationales are today. Having said that, you need to be a local market expert. You You need to have an idea of what's going on in the markets where you're looking to invest. Is population growing or is population declining? Are there more jobs coming into the area or is the unemployment rate going up? Are uh, home prices going up at twenty percent or five percent, or are they flatlining? Uh, and and for any of us to sit here and 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 you know issue an edict that nationally now is a really good time to invest um, would would probably be doing people in those local markets a disservice. Um, but you know the, the the very very strong probability is that on a national basis we we don't see uh, home prices falling. Ten or fifteen or twenty or thirty percent. So if you're waiting for that opportunity, very very unlikely you're going to see too much of that happening, uh, and very unlikely you're going to see any of that happening. To be to be honest, that doesn't mean there aren't opportunities for real estate investing. You just have to adjust your your objectives, uh, adjust what your your <clears throat> your ROI calculations look like. Uh, you know the old the old saying in real estate is the best time to buy a house was fifteen years ago. And the second best time is today. Um, I expect that we'll continue to see home prices go up for the rest of the year. I expect that we won't see mortgage rates come down anytime soon, uh, probably at least not into sometime next year if inflation gets under control. So if you wait six, nine months to to buy something, you're probably going to be paying more for it than if you bought it today. Um, That doesn't mean to rush out and buy the first thing you see. Uh, but if you, if you find something you can afford, if you find something that pencils out at at a profit for you, uh, you know, don't, don't wait, uh, because, because the the likelihood is it's going to cost you more, uh, both from a, a a raw cost standpoint, uh, and from a financing standpoint, if you wait, and and that doesn't even take into account if you need labor and, and materials, those prices continue to go up as well. So, um, There is a strong demand for rental properties. There is a very strong demand for for properties that owner-occupants can can purchase. So whether you're a flipper, uh, whether you're somebody buying properties to to rent out, um, right now there's a probably, I don't know how long the period of time is going to be, but there is a temporary period right now where owner-occupants, prospective owner-occupants have voted themselves off the island. Uh, they've decided right now because of affordability, they're going to wait. So they probably look for rentals. And a lot of those people would like to rent a house. So it, it's it's one of those situations where you might have a short-term opportunity uh, that if you wait, you're going to miss because at some point, those people are just going to decide to throw in and buy.
0: Rick, you just said so much incredible stuff there. It's hard to, to pick which one to go after first. But I want to just say that I love what you're saying here is it just seems like so many people in the media or on social media are saying it's either there's going to be a crash or it's like to the moon. Like those are the only two opinions that people have. And it's so black and white when the truth is always somewhere in the middle and there is gray area. And as you said, the only way to really understand this is to understand your local market. There, you know, Kathy always says there is no national housing market, which is a great right. way of putting it. You know, there is, of course, we try and summarize and talk about broad trends like inventory, but at the end of the day, if you were going to invest, you ha- absolutely have to be a market expert. Uh, because you have such an ex- expertise here in foreclosures, I do want to dive into what you talked about, which is that people were you know, screaming from the mountaintops that there was going to be a foreclosure crisis. I think many people who look at data knew that wasn't gonna happen. But for people who aren't as familiar with what happened with the forbearance program in 2020 and where we are now, can you, can you fill us all in?
4: We came out of an unprecedented situation. Uh, and, and again, I think we had a little bit of PTSD from the Great Recession that, that drove a lot of people's thoughts and fears. Um, look, when, when the pandemic was declared and the government shutdown took place, we wiped out 22 million jobs in a week. That's never happened before, ever. Um, so when you look at losing 22 million jobs uh, and you say foreclosure activity isn't going to go up, people people are justified in looking at you kind of kind of sideways and thinking you might be crazy. Um, this was a very different recession from prior recessions, though. Uh, you look at those 22 million jobs and a couple things jump off the page. First of all, In a normal recession, you have job losses across the board. White collar, blue collar, um, service industries, uh, entrepreneurs, government jobs, you name it. Everybody loses a job. In this case, uh, the job losses were almost exclusively focused on the service sector. Uh, Retail, restaurants, travel, tourism, hospitality, entertainment. They got clobbered. They, They just got clobbered. And if you look at the employees in those industries, they tend to be younger. They tend to be less educated. They tend to be making less money. And because of all that, they tend to be renters more often than they are homeowners. In fact, a lot of them aren't even close to being homeowners. So the kind of fallout you would have normally had losing 22 million jobs, uh, you weren't going to have based on who was losing these jobs because they weren't homeowners in the first place. So it was much more of a renter uh, job loss situation than it was a, a homeowner job loss situation. The other thing is just phenomenal is we're less than two years away from that, that tipping point, and we've recovered almost all those jobs. Uh, in The service sector literally is the only part of the the, the, the job market that hasn't fully recovered, and that's not be, due to lack of effort. There are a ton of jobs still available there, it's just they're having a hard time hiring people. Still about one and a half to two jobs for every person who's looking for work, which is a, a very unusual uh, circumstance. So the, the two things that were really different about this recession were the types of jobs being so um, so focused that were they were lost and how quickly these jobs were recovered. To put that in context, it took us a full decade to recover from the jobs lost in the Great Recession, 10 years. Uh, and, and unemployment there then peaked at about 10 percent compared to 15 percent this time. So you can just kind of see the dynamics there. The other thing is that the government got involved early on and and actually worked very closely with the mortgage industry uh, to to execute two programs. One was a foreclosure moratorium that basically said that any loan that was backed by by a government entity was not to be foreclosed on until further notice. And that's Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, VA, USDA, all told that accounts for about 70% of mortgages. So right off the bat, seven out of 10 mortgages were protected from being foreclosed on, you know, full stop, period, end of sentence. Um, a lot of the other 30% private portfolio loans, uh, the the lenders and servicers decided to treat them as if they were government loans uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and, and then when they did decide they, they might want to foreclose on some local sheriffs in, in a lot of markets, I heard this anecdotally, refused to move forward on a foreclosure. So uh, the, the local governments were, were kind of stepping in as well. The forbearance program uh, that you mentioned, Dave, has probably been the single best example of the government and mortgage industry working together to achieve a positive outcome I've seen in all my years in the business. Um, there was a very well-known East Coast economist whose work I like to follow because he's invariably wrong, um, who predicted that about 35% of mortgage holders would mortgagees would wind up in the forbearance program. Uh, and if that had happened, it would have bankrupted the mortgage industry and nobody would have gotten any loans. Uh, you didn't see that headline, so apparently that that isn't really what happened. Um, the program peaked uh, at about eight percent of borrowers being in the program, uh, about four point four million people at at the peak. Uh, all told from day one till today, about eight million people, have been in and out of the mortgage forbearance program. There's about 425,000 left. They'll all exit this year. Uh, Of those 8 million people, less than a half a percent have exited via default or short sale or or deed in lieu. Uh, 83% have left with a a plan in place, uh, a mortgage forbearance, not forbearance, a, a mortgage modification. Uh, a deferral program. Um, Some of them paid off their loans. Some of them never missed a payment the whole time they were in forbearance. They were there hedging their bets. But 83% left with a a plan in place. The 17% that didn't, about half ultimately wound up with some sort of plan. The other half went back into forbearance. And of the people that exited with a plan, about 83% of them have continued to make their payments on time since they left. So uh, again, just remarkable, remarkable numbers. And that's left very few people, um, probably a couple hundred thousand, who have exited the program are still delinquent and don't have a plan of, of some sort in place with their with their servicer.
2: But Rick, it's fair to say that they've got they've all got equity, right? Those people the two
4: hundred thousand people, there are very few right now. The, the number of underwater loans, uh, the percentage of of underwater loans, is probably in the low single digits, depending on on whose numbers you follow. Our our number shows you're somewhere around five percent. Uh, that are that are underwater on their loans. And those are just from markets that that haven't fully recovered from the, the downturn. Um, so there's a ton of equity out there. Talk, talked about it before, $27 trillion in equity. In fact, we show at, at Adam that 90% of borrowers in foreclosure have positive equity in their homes. Uh, and a surprising percentage of them have 30, 40, 50% equity. So uh, a, a lot of an opportunity for a much softer landing. But the bottom line is a lot of people believe that forbearance was going to equal foreclosure. If if you were in forbearance when you came out, you were going to be foreclosed on. And that was part of the justification for why millions of people are going to be in foreclosure. That simply isn't the case. And in fact, if you count the couple hundred thousand people I mentioned in the, the current delinquency numbers, uh, we're still looking at numbers that are lower than historically normal levels. Normally, about four percent of mortgages are delinquent at any point in time, and about one percent are in foreclosure. Right now we're uh, we're at three plus percent delinquent and at about a half a percent in foreclosure. So the programs have been remarkably successful. the the strength of the market uh, has been phenomenal. Um, we are starting to see foreclosure activity pick up, and I know that's something you guys wanted to talk about. Uh, but from from where I sit looking at these numbers every month, I don't think we get back to normal levels of foreclosure activity until sometime next year, uh, and and you know, uh, I do not see a foreclosure tsunami on the horizon.
0: Well, thank you, Rick. That's incredible amount of data and specific information that's super helpful. You mentioned that foreclosures are starting to go up. So, what's happening there? Is this you? You mentioned it's not going to be a tsunami. You know, we're at a low level, so even if it's going up, it up high percentage point it's not in absolute terms it's not going to be this huge amount but where are these new foreclosures coming from and you know for people obviously personally don't ever want to root for foreclosures but does this mean that there are going to be buying opportunities for real estate investors
4: yeah there 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 will be um again as i mentioned in a normal market about 1% of loans are in foreclosure during the great recession we were at about four to 5% in foreclosure and about 12% delinquent, but not in foreclosure. So that's how bad it was then. Uh, again, juxtapose that with where we are today. Um, a lot of what you're seeing in foreclosure activity right now is restarts of properties that were in foreclosure before the pandemic. So that that government moratorium froze those, those loans in place for over two years. Uh, and some of those people actually wound up in the forbearance program as well. So when, when you see people exiting forbearance without a, a loan modification or a deferral program in place, a lot of them were already 120 days delinquent before the pandemic, or they were already in foreclosure before the pandemic. So the first wave of activity that we've been charting at Adam since uh, since January really uh, have been mostly those loans that were already in in trouble uh, before the pandemic, before the government programs kicked in. So we're not seeing a lot of new foreclosures. Uh, what we're really seeing is a lot of new activity, if you will, but it's on, on these older troubled loans. Uh, we will start to see more normalized foreclosure activity as we go forward. And one of the things that we do need to keep our eye on is if we do enter into a recession. And, you know, uh, bad news for people who don't like recessions. Uh, if, if, the, if the Fed activity has the same result that it's had in eight of the last 11 times its it's raised Fed funds rates, we're probably going to be seeing a recession sometime in 2023. Uh, most forecasts are that it'll be a short recession and it'll be a fairly mild recession, but it will still result in some job loss. And job loss tends to lead to mortgage delinquencies and that tends to lead to foreclosures. So we'll probably see a little bit of activity there. But Right now you're you characterized it right, Dave. Um, I, I think our May foreclosure report showed on a year-over-year basis, foreclosure activity was up 158%. Uh, but but you know keep in mind that's that's like going from you know one foreclosure to two and a half foreclosures. That's 150% increase. Um, so we're we're coming off historically low levels of foreclosure activity. Uh, and 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 so the the percentage increases year over year are gonna look ridiculous. Uh, but, but we're still running at about half of the rate of foreclosure activity we would normally see. One thing I do want to point out to your investor uh, viewers and listeners, I, I think this is, this is important for them to understand in this cycle. The last time we went through foreclosure wave, the smart thing to do is to wait for the lender to repossess the property, wait for it to become an REO. Uh, and then buy it when it came back on the market. And, and at that point, you knew it was going to be discounted because it had been sitting vacant for two years and and you get the best deal. I don't think there's going to be a lot of REO activity this time. I, I mentioned that 90% of borrowers in foreclosure have positive equity. We know we have more demand than we have supply for homes. I believe the majority of borrowers who find themselves in financial distress are going to be able to exit by selling their house before the foreclosure auction takes place. Uh, And I think that's smart of them to do. So if I'm an investor, I'm going to be trying to look for those people in the early stage of foreclosure and go and deal directly with them. Uh, Your second best bet is going to be going to the foreclosure auction. And and I know, Jamil, you have some some interesting experiences there. Uh, But my auction company friends tell me that the sell-through rate at auctions, at courthouse auctions and sheriff sales right now is about 70%. So seven out of 10 properties that get to the auction block are selling at the auction. That's about twice the normal rate. So the combination of properties being sold before the auction, properties being sold at the auction, means a lot less of those properties are going to get back to the lender. Uh, and, And so waiting around for those REOs, whether you're an agent looking to list them or an investor looking to buy them, is gonna dramatically limit your opportunities in this cycle, because it, again, very different cycle than the last one we went through.
2: And you know, Rick, the, the, a lot of the activity that, or, or the naysayers, the people that are stuck on fear headlines that I've been, I've been listening to, or watching at least, I don't listen to them, um, is the, the activity that we saw that led to the, you know, just the craziness of appreciation in a lot of the markets. And that was the overbidding, the fifty hundred, two hundred thousand dollars above list price. I know that happened in Southern California quite a bit when people were just the demand was so overwhelming that they were paying hundreds of thousands of dollars above appraisal appraisal contingencies. So the lenders aren't even backing the value that this property is being sold at. So somebody has to come in with cash now and make up the difference. And that was so much activity in, in very many markets for quite an extended period of time. And I feel that that's risky appreciation at that point because it was not lender backed, it was not appraised, it was, this is just emotional equity. And so I wanna understand what the impact of emotional equity is gonna have on the housing market so that people who are in the fix and flip game they can understand, you know, what comp do I hold, which which sale actually is the true sale that I know that if I go and buy a property, I can bake in the correction that might occur because of the emotional equity. Or are we just agreeing the emotional equity is here to stay? Values raise this much, we're gonna plateau at a single digit or possibly no appreciation in some markets, but you know it happened it happened and now it's it's there and we can actually count on that sale as a benchmark for value
4: well if i if i had the exact answer to that i'd i'd write my book and go on the road and 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 retire <laughs> soon um <laughs> it it it's it's a great question and the, the numbers in the last year you have to take with a grain of salt because Buying behavior was so different than it normally is. and And you just characterized it really well by talking about you know the the emotions involved, um, the, the emotional equity, I guess if If you were buying a house and and let's face it, appraisal values always lag the market, right? So they lag it going up. They lag it coming down. That's just the nature of the beast.. Um, and you knew that you could buy that property by contributing more cash. I would submit to you that that's not as risky as it sounds, because you're not likely to get foreclosed on because, or, or if, you, if, if you have to sell the property, you might be out the cash, but, but you're probably going to be able to get somebody to buy it for at least enough to cover your mortgage. Uh, which, because you had such a high down payment, and that's that's one of the factors that was very different. We had a very low percentage of first-time home buyers in the last year. It was probably twenty-five percent, whereas in a normal market, it's it's north of forty percent. So everybody who was buying these really expensive houses was tapping into equity that already accrued in their current house and making a pretty significant down payment on the next one. That and the 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 low cost of capital, the low cost of financing. Made those monthly payments affordable, so so again it, it kind of mitigated risk because you know you traded in a four and a half percent mortgage on your current house for a three percent mortgage on your new one, um, so so there there's that factor as well. The I saw a post yesterday on Twitter from an economist who was talking about how Boise seems uh, poised. for for price declines. And and what he was pointing to was a chart that showed home price appreciation going up and then coming back down. And and he failed to point out that the the low mark, which is right now, is still 12% year over year home price appreciation. And and I I, I kind of raised my hand in the background and said, excuse me, excuse me, is is 12% on top of last year's 40% really showing that the market's going negative uh, or, or should we just be be kind of happy that we're at 12 percent um, the the other thing and Boise's a good example of this is normally prices go up organically on a local market basis Boise prices did not go up 45 percent last year because of anything happening in Boise uh, the economy didn't suddenly double you had people moving in from the Bay Area of California. They, they sold a house in San Jose. They made $900,000. They took $450,000 of it and overpaid for a property in Boise uh, by 20 or 30% over list price. And they were happy to do it because they got twice as much house. They still had $450,000 to put in the bank, and they don't care. And they don't have a mortgage. Uh, so they're not going to get foreclosed on. Um, are they going to be able to get $450,000 for the house if they sell it this year? I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, it looks like it because prices are still going up 12%. But but that that kind of out-of-state migration, and you talked about migration and millennials being two of the drivers, Jamil. Um, that out-of-state migration trend, high-cost, high-tax states to low-cost, low-tax states, really inflated those median values pretty significantly. Uh, and, and I don't want to say artificially, but it's just not the way numbers have historically behaved. So you have to keep that in mind. Um, so if I'm a flipper, I'm probably not banking on much appreciation at this point, but I, I don't know that I would price in, uh, a discount on my property. Uh, just because I thought last year was overvalued and, and people were buying, you know, they're getting out over their skis to buy. Uh, we just we just released our, our first quarter flip, flipping numbers, by the way. And the percentage of residential properties sold in the first quarter that were flipped was the highest it's been in over a decade. It was, it was almost 10% of all properties. Wow. So we had a very, very high percentage of, of flipped homes in the mix. Still a lot of demand. Um, but the margins were a little down. Uh, they, they, they were still healthy. Uh, but, but it, it appears that buyers are starting to look a little bit more carefully. You're not seeing them overpay. You're, you're not seeing them throw extra cash into the deals. So again, if I'm a flipper right now, I'm going to be really careful in terms of what I pay for a property that I don't overpay for it. Uh, cause I can't bank on 20% year over year appreciation in every market anymore. And I'm going to take a real sharp pencil to, to kind of estimating my repair costs, especially with labor rates going up and, and materials being more expensive. So I think in today's market, it's easier to get yourself in trouble. You know, a high demand, rapidly appreciating market is gravy for a flipper. Uh, but as as those market conditions start to shift a little bit, and and, and mortgage rates have done that, uh, then you have to be a little bit more careful, a little bit more, I guess, thorough in, in your assessment of the property's value. It's as repaired value and what those repairs are going to cost you.
0: Rick, that's an incredible summary. And although I'd love to hear more from you, we do have to wrap up this interview. Is there anything else you think that our listeners should know about the housing market or prospects of real estate investing for the second half of 2022?
4: I, I think it's a great market for, for both fix and flip investors uh, and for rental property investors uh, right now. Um, I, I, I would urge your, your viewers to pay close attention to what's going on in their state capitals. And their state houses. There's some horrific legislation uh, trying to work its way through the the house in in California right now, um, and and investors are kind of at the bullseye uh, of, of the target, uh, if you will, uh, because there's this belief that investors are competing with with first time home buyers and keeping them out of the market. So you're likely to see well intended but really awful uh, legislation um, by by politicians who think they're trying to do what's in the best interest of their, of their constituents, but maybe screwing up the market in general. So I, I, I can't point to anything specific across the country, but I, I would I would urge your, your, your viewers, your listeners to, to find out what's going on in their states and, and to, to get active to the extent that they need to, to try and prevent anti-investor legislation from taking place. You know, the real, reality is 90 plus percent of the market is mom and pop investors. It's it's the small investors. They actually contribute a lot to the local economies and, and provide added value to, to communities and neighborhoods. A lot of the legislative activity is aimed at institutional investors. Um, and, and even though it, it's not fair to aim at them because they may not be doing anything terribly wrong either, um, People aiming at them inadvertently hurt those small investors. That we saw that with the eviction bans that were part of the the pandemic protocols, um, and 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 I'm afraid we might see more of that going forward. Um, that so I, you know I think we covered generally trends going on in housing. Uh, I I do think again we'll see foreclosure activity continue to gradually uh, pick itself up as we we get through the the rest of this year. The other thing I would say, if you're looking at foreclosures, is if you happen to be in a market that has a high saturation of FHA loans, uh, those are probably the first loans that will uh, suffer in an economic downturn. Uh, Those borrowers typically have less equity. They typically have lower cash reserves. They typically have a higher debt to income ratio. And with inflation running at 8.6%, the highest it's been in 40 years, and with the cost of necessities going up even more rapidly, I think fuel costs are up 50% year over year. Food costs are up 10 to 15%. A higher percentage of the take-home pay for those borrowers goes toward those necessities. So if we are going to have problems, um, those, those are markets where you have a high saturation of FHA borrowers, where you might have more distressed loans more quickly. So you know, make, make sure you're visible. Uh, make sure you're, you're front and center for anybody who's looking to sell a house uh, in distress.
2: Uh, This is such a great uh, opportunity to talk to you, Rick. And I think I'm I'm fair to say that from this interview today, I can say that unequivocally, the sky is not falling.
4: It is not. (laughs) It's a good lesson
0: for everyone to take away from the interview. Rick, thank you so much for joining. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. If any one of our listeners wants to connect with you, where can they do that?
4: Uh, They can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Uh, I I keep it really simple. My Twitter handle is at Rick Sharga. Uh, we post a lot at Adam Data—that's Adam with two T's—and uh, and, and uh, have a series of reports that we publish for free, uh, virtually every week that are that are available on our website in the Insights section. So, feel free to check me out at at the Adam site or uh, uh, find me on on LinkedIn or Twitter.
0: All right, Rick Sharga, EVP of Market Intelligence for Adam. Thanks
4: for joining us. Thanks for having me. We'll do it again.
0: Jamil. Whew, that was a lot of information. I'm feeling good right now. I don't know why. It's just you know. I
2: don't know. I feel like I just got like soothed. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Like I just had like mom just be like, "It's okay. It's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay." And not that I didn't realize that or know that it was gonna be okay, Dave. Because look, yes, uh, you know, in my wholesale business, sales are down approximately ten percent. Okay, and that's just because Wait,
0: sale- sales volume or sales price?
2: No volume. Yeah, yeah Price is not And so, you know, we're, we're seeing a, just a little bit of But that's seasonal too it's, it's, it's hot You know, a lot of people are leaving on summer holiday they're, they're people just doing what they normally do in the summertime And we've just had a lot of negative uh, people in, with megaphones That shouldn't be talking without looking at data And I'm so happy that this show exists Because we can bring people who spend their entire day swinging, swimming in numbers So that we can retort some of this, the craziness that I've been hearing out there.
0: A hundred percent. You know, I, I feel like, you know, I look at a lot of data, not at the same level as Rick, but I feel like I was coming up with similar conclusions and we've talked a lot about this on the show, but it's very reassuring to hear someone with his expertise. And he's been doing this for a long time, just giving a really clear understanding of why this time is different and what is likely to happen. And I just like really appreciate his very frank and honest assessment of the situation. And listen, I, I we've sort of been saying this, it's, it's local, like there are gonna be markets that see declines. I think that's natural. There are markets that are probably gonna be re- pretty flat for a while. But what really stuck out to me more than anything was he was saying he thinks mortgage rates are gonna keep going up. He thinks prices are going to keep going up. So like if you're waiting on the sideline, which people honestly have been doing for like seven years, yeah. if you're continuing to wait on the sideline, it might actually get more expensive depending on your market. And again, it just depends on where you are. But that sort of stuck out to me is like there are people probably listening who are saying like, I'm waiting for this crash. I'm waiting for this 20% decline. And at least according to Rick, that's that's not coming. Yeah, it's
2: it's not coming. And not only that, but... um, What I found super interesting Was even his assessment on You know we talked about that little emotional equity piece That has happened where we've had people just overpaying And you know what it dawned on me when he was saying all that Is that the price of real estate is not determined by an appraiser It is not determined by a lender It is not determined by a seller or a realtor The price of real estate is determined by a buyer.
0: 100%.
2: Hands down. And there are more buyers right now than there are anything else. There are people that have the ability, they are not as sensitive to interest rates, they have high income paying jobs, they've got bags of cash from their high cost, high tax markets, and they're coming in and they're still ready to take opportunity. Totally. That's not going to go away anytime soon.
0: And a lot of people are like, oh, institutional buyers or investors, and it is going up. Don't don't get me wrong; like, more investors are buying more, but eighty percent, even still, eighty percent are home buyers. And you're talking, you know, they set the price of the market for a large part. Of course, like we saw Zillow doing some crazy stuff out there for a while, but you know, for the most part, it is home buyers. It's the people you were describing. That was a great question, by the way, and people that that Rick was describing as well, and you know. Obviously, no one knows what's going to happen, but so you know, Rick today, uh, Logan Motoshami, who we had on a few weeks ago, we're talking so much about demographics. Demographics shape the housing market, and that isn't changing. Like you said, there's three conditions that led to this rapid appreciation. One is getting pulled away. There's still two legs. Two legs there. Um, I guess the stool would fall down with only two legs. But you get the analogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
2: but um, and it and yeah. really just depends on how you're leaning on the stool. I mean, guys, we might just have to get a little bit better with our core. Yeah, right. A little our bound. core fundamentals. He's talking about it. He <laughs> was talking about good buying practice, understanding what you're paying for and why you're paying for it. And second, you know, really, really, really looking for those opportunities. He, he, I, guys, if you didn't take this. He said there is massive opportunities coming just in the pre-foreclosure, going in and being able to problem solve for the people who aren't problem solving for themselves. You're going to find buying opportunities there. You're going to be able to get deals. You're going to be able to, to really capitalize on that, but it's not going to come from this massive wave, this tsunami of foreclosures. There's not going to be an REO storm, guys. Normal market conditions in that way, in that respect, they're going to do the same things that we've been doing as investors. Fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals.
0: Before we go, I I do want to know what, what is your experience with buying foreclosures?
2: Man, that's a great question. And, And you know, we, we got to talk off camera before we started the podcast with Rick and I explained to him. So foreclosures, I've been, I've been investing in them. I've bought them, but in 2008, I bought lots or 2009, 2009, 2010, I bought a lot of foreclosures, And, and I got great deals on them and deals that were just phenomenal that you would never understand. Like condos that were worth that sold for 400,000, I was paying 25. Right. But I want to, I want to say that I was renting them at 800. So rent really hadn't gone down. Like there was, so I saw great opportunity there. That was my first experience with foreclosures. And then after that, I would try to go to the auction. I try to buy pre- foreclosure I try to you know buy those foreclosure properties that were being auctioned off and I had a tough time there and that's typically because bidding services and those those good old boys that that monopolize the action at the courthouse steps those are the guys that really control that buying process. but Rick also talked about you know things like auction.com where now you can go directly to the trustee and you can buy directly from them. Uh, but you can still buy from those bidding houses. So I would just pay the fifteen hundred dollar fee for a bid service to go and, and get me the deal that I was looking to get, and they also helped me read the title report, make sure that I wasn't buying a second instead of actually buying a, a, a property, buying a, a a first note, a deed of trust, and so this is this is an incredible opportunity. I think, you know, I I personally buy it auction through proxy through bid services. I still think that there's going to be a little bit of opportunity there. And as he said, it's not going to be a wave, but if you can get to them pre
0: foreclosure, you're going to have an opportunity there. That's such good practical advice. You know, like it from someone like Rick, who's an expert in this, just showing how it's going to be different. There will be opportunities, but you got to move upstream in the process here. If you're going to find those good deals. All right. As much fun as this has been, we do have to go. Uh, Before we do go just a reminder to please leave us a five-star review we appreciate it and if you want to hang out with me and jamil and the rest of the on the market crew make sure to get your bp con tickets it's gonna be in san diego it's gonna be super fun i Honestly when I used to travel a lot for work I really dreaded going to conferences but I really I genuinely look forward to the the Bigger Pockets conference it's going to be fun
2: It is I'm there's a lot of great guests that are going to be there this year and so there's so much to learn it's such a dynamic and fun market right now that we're dealing with guys don't sit on the sidelines really, really there's deals to be bought there Oh totally there's money to be found there connections to be made softwares and and efficiencies for your businesses that you'll find don't sleep on bp
0: sweet all right well thanks everyone for listening for jamil i'm dave meyer and we'll see you all next week on the market is created by me dave meyer and kaylin bennett produced by kaylin bennett editing by joel esparza and onyx media copywriting by nate weintraub and a very special thanks to the entire bigger pockets team The content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only.